Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine. Again, no highly produced opening, but uh, here we are, episode two already, and people said it wouldn't last. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, please give me a five-star review on iTunes and uh, subscribe on iTunes. I'm supposed to get that out of the way right at the start. Anyway, got a good show planned for you today, a lot of interesting things, and I'm going to kick it off by talking a little bit about MASH, because MASH is a subject that uh, you all seem to be very interested in when you read my blog, which is probably uh, where most of you found this podcast in the first place. And I want to tell a story about MASH that I've told elsewhere, so it's not like I'm really telling tales out of school, but it's uh, it's a pretty amusing story. Uh, First of all, a little background on MASH. Uh, We would shoot all of the exteriors out at the Malibu Ranch, which is about 30 miles away from 20th Century Fox in Century City, where we had a soundstage, stage nine, and we shot the show. But one day a week, we would go out to the Malibu Ranch and we would shoot all of those exteriors. We did not have a helicopter pad in stage nine. So we would actually go outside and and shoot those things. And we usually would do that during the summer and really up until daylight savings time ended because you reached a point where if it's starting to get dark at 4.30 in the afternoon, you're really not going to get a lot of pages filmed in the day. So during the summer when it was light from 5.30 in the morning until 8.15 at night, that's when we did most of our filming outside. In fact, when we were putting the scripts together, if there was a script that uh, did not really require that we go outside, maybe it was a show that was primarily at night, or it was a show that centered around a poker game in the swamp, something like that, we would hold those scripts back and film them in October or November, even if they were written in March or April. But if we had a show where there was going to be explosions or uh, we had various stunts uh, outdoors, we would move those up to July and August. Back in those days, we filmed 25 episodes of MASH over the course of six months. 
from really the 4th of July to Christmas, we would film 25 episodes. So anyway, you go out to the ranch, and the one thing that you are struck by is it is hot. It is really, really hot, like 105-degree hot. I mean, like Africa hot. Uh, even though you were not that far from the Pacific Ocean, there was that uh, mountain range. You know, you see those purple mountains with the helicopters flying by. Well, those mountains kept the heat in, and it was just broiling out there. Uh, You know, your hearts really had to go out to those actors who had to be out there from really 5.30 in the morning until 8.15 at night once a week uh, filming those shows. Okay, that's the background. Now, one of the things that we would do on MASH, and they do this really on all shows, is we have at the beginning of each episode what we call a table read. And what that is, is all of the actors gather around a table and read the script out loud. And we get a sense of what works, what doesn't work, if something is going on too long or something doesn't make sense. Uh, we hear it, and then we go back to the room and rewrite. And one of the traditions that was started by Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, who were the creators of the show way back in season one, because David Isaacs and I were the head writers of MASH really in the middle years, like six and seven. So uh, they had a tradition whereby after the table reading... They would go page by page and ask the actors if they had any questions or any problems. Anybody have anything on page one? Anybody have anything on page two, page three, four, etc.? And most of the time, the actors were fine. And sometimes they would have a valid problem. You know, um, why would I shoot this guy in the face? You know, stuff like that. Uh, But every so often... One of the actors early on would have some picky, yoon piece of shit, tiny, stupid question, and that would open the floodgates. And all of a sudden, we were getting questions on every single page. And there were always niggly things, and it's like, I don't know why I would be this angry. Wouldn't I say this word? Why would I do that? Why would I say this? You know, and we would jot down all of their concerns, and we would go back to the office and uh, rewrite the script, address all of their bullshit problems. Um, But we wanted a way to tell them, um, you know, this is really annoying to us, and if the first actor didn't say something on page three, you all would have been fine for the rest of the time. This is not something that uh, is is really going to prevent you from doing a great job on the show. But, you know, we were young writers, and we didn't want to seem like assholes and go up to the actors and go, uh, this is really annoying. So what we did was this. Whenever the actors had all of these little nothing notes for us to do, we'd go back to the office, and I would say to my partner, you know, David... I feel a a cold front coming on. And we would take next week's show, after we addressed all of their notes, we would take next week's show, and we would take about an hour, and we would turn it into a cold show. 
And whenever there was a cold show, because in Korea it was just frigid in the winter, uh, everybody would be in parkas and uh, standing over fire barrels and that sort of thing. So we would make the following week's show a cold show, and they would have to go out to the ranch and stand in parkas over fire barrels when it was 115 degrees. Okay, here we go. Take nine. Take ten. Well, this happened like two or three times, and the actors got the message, and all of a sudden, anybody have anything on page four, page five, page six, page 31, page 32? Good. Thank you very much. We're done. That was it. That was the last time we ever got niggly notes. We're coming back with more Hollywood and Levine. This is episode two. I'm Ken Levine. More right after this. Thank you for enduring that endless break. I'm Ken Levine. This is Hollywood and Levine. Now, last week, I played a snippet of one of my disc jockey shows back from 1977 when I was Beaver Cleaver on the new 10Q in Los Angeles. And a lot of people were interested in that, and they said, we want to hear more about your Airzots radio career. So I thought I would talk a little bit more, and I would play you an even longer air check in this episode two of Hollywood and Levine. So I became a disc jockey out of college, and back in the late 60s, radio, as opposed to today, was really fun And also, radio had a big impact. I mean, everybody listened to the same station. And disc jockeys, especially creative disc jockeys, were very, very popular. And there were some brilliantly talented top 40 disc jockeys like Dan Ingram in New York, Larry Lujak in Chicago, The Real Don Steele and Robert W. Morgan in Los Angeles, Uh, On and on and on. In fact, uh, over the next few months, I may be playing you snippets of some of those guys, too. They're way better than me, so I'm going to hold off on them. So I want them to be as far away from my air checks as possible. Um, So I became a top 40 disc jockey when I got out of UCLA. And it was really a lot of fun, except there is no job security And I didn't have the classic DJ voice, especially back then when it was all about high energy and talking as fast as you can. And so if you tend to have a high voice, it gets even higher if you're constantly trying to sound like you have great momentum. Anyway, uh, I got fired a lot. And the reason really not so much my voice, although in a couple of cases might have been my voice, but... Most of the time, it was because I had a lot of content on the radio. I loved goofing around on the radio, and I loved the restriction of the Top 40 format. By that, I meant, you know, you had to get in your one-liner in 10 seconds. That's all the time you had was over the intro of a song. And so you really learned brevity And you really learned how to be spontaneous and quickly funny. And uh, a lot of disc jockeys would spend hours and hours preparing their show. They would sit and write reams and reams of material. All of their ad libs were scripted. And I never did. 
I never did any preparation. I felt that, look, I have two and a half minutes between songs, so I can't think of one funny thing to say in two and a half minutes. There's something wrong. So I never did any preparation. And, you know, I listened back to some of these tapes because a lot of these tapes were made on cassette and put in a box, and I hadn't heard them for years and years and years. And finally, a friend said, hey, I'll digitize them for you. So I gave him the box of tapes and said, here, good luck. And so now I'm listening to some of these tapes for the first time in years, and I'm surprised by the things (laughs) that I said. It's like, really? I actually said that on the radio? Anyway, what I'm going to be playing you is uh, another sample from 10Q from 1977 in Los Angeles. But here's the point I wanted to make. Constantly, I was getting hammered, just crushed by program directors who were telling me, you're not funny, shut up, just play the records, just stop trying to be humorous. And uh, eventually they would fire me. And then the ratings would come out, and my ratings were always like the highest in town. But still, by then I was fired. So, you know, I'm packing up my, uh, my apartment and putting everything into my 1966 Mustang and heading off to the next job to be fired eight months later from there. So eventually I... I leave radio, I say enough is enough, and uh, break in as a TV writer. And once I'm a TV writer, then I get jobs on the weekend at first B100 in San Diego, and then 10Q in Los Angeles. 10Q is an AM station that begins in 1977, and I get hired to do Saturday night from 6 to 10, and that is my only shift. Because at the same time, during the week, I'm the head writer of MASH. So I'm only able to really do four hours a week. Now, I'm doing the exact same stuff that I did back in 1973, 1972, 1974, all of the years when program directors were saying, you're not funny, shut up. But now that I have a TV writing career and I have a certain amount of credibility, all of a sudden everyone is saying, this guy's a genius. This guy is just comic gold. It's the same stuff. And I've always maintained that the only way for me to get any kind of respect in radio was to get out of it. Coming up next, here I am again on the new 10Q. KTNQ Los Angeles, LA's only radio. Well, here I come again, looking better than a body has a right to. Beaver Cleaver getting you through the night with Wham and the greatest music on earth. Just a shade after 6 o'clock here at the new 10Q. Whatever gets you through the John in the background, he's the one with his hair falling out. Lieutenant Q, three minutes after six o'clock, and this is Beaver Cleaver bringing on either Dolly Parton or Audrey Hepburn. I always get the two confused. Do you come again? You come again. Just when I'm 
some square dance disco. Dolly Parton and Beaver Cleaver 605. Isn't it time that you heard the babies? Stampede, produced and presented by Wolf and Rissmiller Concerts. Thank you, Radio. Well, Tony Evans brings you the thank you uh, telephone top 40 every Monday night, chilling from 6 to 9 p.m. Shots, Mr. Russell, my test paper with nothing but my name on it. See, I got the love Jones for this little girl of mine. That's why I say, how's your weekend? Come on, testify. What's happening, baby? Did you miss me over the weekend? I can go one-on-one against the world. 10Q with the brighter side of darkness and Love Jones, Beaver Cleaver 622. Get ready, Southern California, for the greatest show on wheels. November 18th, 19th, and 20th at the Long Beach Arena Complex. It happens next weekend. Another R.G. Canning production. Echo, 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 plus see the hit movie Car Wash free at the car show. Q, brand new Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Breakdown. Thank you with a song dedicated to our equipment. Breakdown, Tom Petty and Beaver Cleaver, 625. Music Plus celebrates its third anniversary with the holiday season. And joining in the festivities is ABC Records. Where music plays. And watch for that pesky grand opening of a new Music Plus Pomona store two blocks south of the San Bernardino Freeway at 1805 Indian Hill Boulevard. Thank you. Well, usually I've got a guy answering my telephones, but I think he's answering phones for Jimmy Hoffa tonight, so I'm going to have to get to you just as soon as I can. Hang on. 520-WINS is my telephone number. Radio Los Angeles has your favorite boogie, 630, and this is that once-a-week freak beaver cleaver. Some girls love to run setting the die variable Beeble Fetzer and letting the time slide roll back to 1967 the Turtles and she'd rather be with me at 632 and this is Beaver Cleaver. Oxy Scrub isn't another cure for acne pimples. Oxy Scrub is a preventive measure. <laughs> Hello, Seal. This is Lillian. Val, how's buying you? Me, Val, don't ask. It's my son, Louis. But, right, he's got a new girlfriend. Huh? It's bad enough she's not Jewish. Stories here in Beaver Cleaver at uh, 639. This weekend, Channel 5 brings you two mind-boggling movies. Saturday, Chariots and the Gods. Channel 5. Boy, speaking of alien beings, Boyd R. Britton just walked in here. How are you tonight, Boyd? Superata Nikto. <laughs> right. I didn't know he could speak Hebrew. The new 10Q, he's so vain, he probably thinks this song is about him. Nobody does it better. And Carly Simon. Nobody does it better. And Beaver Cleaver broadcasting live and direct from a dilapidated old former mortuary on Western Avenue. This really is a cruddy building, folks. The 
tenement queue, as I like to call it. And I've got a telephone right here by my side. 520-WINS is my number. Now, sometime later tonight, right from this hideous building, I could be giving away a $50 bill to you or a skateboard or a super AM FM radio. Now, to be an instant winner, remember, 520-WINS. follow-up story about 10Q. And for this, I have to go back to 1973. It is the springtime of 73, and I am doing all nights at KMEN San Bernardino. Meanwhile, I had a friend, he was actually my college roommate, who was on KKDJ in Los Angeles, which was a top 40, in fact, the first FM top 40 station. Again, this is 1973, and he's on the air doing evenings, and I'm on in San Bernardino doing the all-night show. So I hear that there is an opening at KKDJ for weekend all-nights, which is obviously the worst time shift in radio, worst time shift ever. There's nobody listening. But for me, with my high voice, I never thought I would get to L.A. So I thought this might be my only chance to actually be on the radio in Los Angeles. And KKDJ at the time was in a skyscraper on uh, Sunset and Vine, and you looked out over all of Hollywood and the city from their control room. It was so cool. I wanted to work there. So I said to my friend, um, could you please arrange a meeting with their program director, Rick Carroll? And he called back a couple of days later and said, okay, Rick Carroll will see you, put together a tape, and uh, come on in on Thursday at 2 in the afternoon. So I went and I took some of my air checks from the past couple of weeks, and I went in the production studio and assembled a tape, which was basically a five-minute sample of my air work, but it had all of my best funny bits. So I put this thing together, and I put on a suit and tie and drive in from San Bernardino, and I meet with Rick Carroll, the program director of KKDJ, and we go into his office, and we talk for a couple of minutes, and he says, okay, well, let me put your tape on. So he puts my tape on, and he listens to the first couple of breaks, and then he stops it, and he turns to me, and he says, so do you think I'm a fucking idiot? And, of course, I was like, the, the, what? I was completely gobsmacked. What? 
and he said, how can you come into my office and play me a tape when you're stealing material from my nighttime jock, which was my friend? And I said, oh, well, no, no, that, that, that was me. I, I, huh? Anyway, he threw me out. And uh, I immediately went to a payphone and I called my friend and like, what the fuck? And he was like, oh, oh you know, I, I did it inadvertently and I'm such a fan and I listen to you every night. And yeah, 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 yeah. Meanwhile, I don't get the job. So now we flash forward a few years and I'm on 10Q doing what you just heard. And I'm on the air about six months and I get a call on the hotline and it's Rick Carroll. And he says, uh, do you remember coming into my office and applying for a job on KKDJ? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I still have the visual tick. And he said, well, I've been listening to you the last couple of months, and I just want to say I owe you an apology that clearly you're the one that generated all of this content, all of this material, not the jock who I had. And I thought that was really a a lovely gesture. Meanwhile, that jock and I have not spoken in 40 years, but that was over something else. Anyway, this is Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, coming back with more right after this. Again, thank you so much for enduring those long musical interludes. We have now come to the portion of the podcast where I answer reader questions, or in this case, listener questions. And it's a feature that I do in my blog called Friday Questions. I've been doing it for probably eight, nine years now, where readers uh, will submit questions about uh, entertainment or anything, and I'll try to answer as many as I can, and so I thought I would do that here, too. All you have to do to submit a question is just go to my blog, buykenlevine.com, and go to any post and just click on the comment section and just say, this is a Friday question, and I will see it and hopefully answer it. So today's come from Reader Michael. And he says, is there a strong correlation between the episodes you wrote that you feel are your strongest and the ones that were nominated for Emmys? Well, the answer, Michael, is not necessarily. I mean, I do think that the scripts that were nominated deserve to be, you know, but there were others that I felt were really just as good or better and didn't get any kind of recognition. Uh, Case in point is Cheers. Of all the episodes that my partner David Isaacs and I wrote, and there were 40 of them, the one that I really loved the best was called To All the Girls I've Loved Before. That was the episode, I think it was season six, five, seven, something like that. But that was the episode where Frazier had his bachelor party. And it's kind of distinguished for uh, one line when Frazier enters and he does the everybody have fun tonight, everybody Wang Chung tonight. Uh, That uh, particular line, for whatever reason, has gone viral. Anyway, um, we love that episode because we did it very differently than any other episode we've ever done on any show. Usually, especially for a half-hour situation comedy where you only have a certain amount of time, you very carefully work out the story in advance. 
and you write a very detailed outline, like 10, 12 pages, and the outline is revised and revised yet again, so that when you go off and actually write the draft of the script, you are working off of a very clear game plan. Well, David and I love the idea that with Cheers, we had those riffs where the guys were just bantering. We used to call it the bar talk section. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun to just have an episode where there was no outline whatsoever, to just kind of see where it goes and let the characters kind of take us in one direction or the other. And we went to the Charles Brothers, who are the creators of Cheers, and we proposed this idea. And they said, okay, fine, go with it. They trusted us that much. And so armed with only this, that Frazier has a bachelor party at Cheers, and he has second thoughts about getting married, but by the end of the episode decides, yes, indeed, he is going to marry Lilith. And that was it. And we just fade in, interior bar, day, and we were off to the races. And the fact that that episode came out so well, and the fact that probably 93, 94% of it is actually from our first draft, I would say that would be our favorite Cheers episode, despite the fact that it was not nominated for anything. Way back in the late 70s, there was a series called The Tony Randall Show. Do you remember it? Do you even remember Tony Randall? Tony Randall, he did a lot of movies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but you probably know him as uh, Felix Unger in the TV version of The Odd Couple. Well, he got his own show, and in this show, he plays a judge in Philadelphia. And this was the first series that my partner David Isaacs and I uh, got to be on staff And it was uh, run by Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, who were two incredibly funny writers who were also the showrunners of the Bob Newhart show back in the 70s. So we wrote a couple of episodes of the Tony Randall show, and I saw in the paper, it was around election time, and I saw in the paper that uh, there was a race for some office, and during the campaign one of the candidates died. So the other candidate was running unopposed. And the L.A. Times endorsed the dead guy, saying it was better to elect the dead guy and then have the governor just appoint somebody than to elect this other candidate. So I thought, wouldn't this be a great episode where the Tony Randall character uh, runs for Superior Court Judge against uh, the old incumbent, and uh, the incumbent dies, and Tony loses to a dead man. And we did that episode, and again, very funny, came off great. Uh, David Ogden Stiers was a guest star in it. Nothing. Nobody remembers anything about that episode. Uh, For Frasier, we wrote probably eight, nine episodes of Frasier, don't remember exactly, Uh, got nominated for a couple of them, but My favorite episode, and it's the one that we were not nominated for for anything, was called Room Service. That was the episode where Niall sleeps with Lilith, and uh, it's my favorite. I I think probably one of my top five favorite episodes of anything we ever wrote. Uh, There's also a few episodes of Almost Perfect, the show we did for CBS uh, that we co-wrote with Robin Schiff that I thought was nomination-worthy. And uh, I got nothing, but 
you know, that's that's to be expected. Uh, you know, we have a, an expression where shows need to be tuxedo shows. And by that, shows that get Emmy recognition where you all dress up and you get into your tuxedos and you go down for the ceremony. Um, but one time, back in like 1981, we wrote an episode of a series called Open All Night. Now, I'm sure you've never heard of Open All Night. I think it lasted 13 episodes on ABC. I don't even know if they aired all of the episodes. But that, too, was created and run by Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus. So David and I did a couple of episodes. It was a a show set in like a 7-Eleven all-night convenience store. And uh, we put one of our episodes that we thought was extremely funny up for a Writers Guild Award. You know, and you enter these things and then go away and don't even think about them again. And a few months later, we get a call from our agent saying, hey, congratulations, uh, you guys are nominated for a Writers Guild Award for Open All Night. And we thought she was joking. We said, yeah, great. Okay, thank you very much. And this was before the Internet where you you couldn't just go to the computer and uh, check it out. So uh, we didn't think much about it. And then the next day, uh, the paper came, and I thought, hmm, I'm kind of curious to see who really did get nominated for a Writers Guild Award. And son of a bitch, we actually were. Well, by the time the ceremony took place, the show was off the air. The production company was disbanded. Uh, We had to pay for our own tickets And they sat us at the Hill Street Blues tables, all these Hill Street Blues writers, and me and my partner and our wives, and they're looking at us like, well, who are you here for? And we said, well, we're nominated, you know, open all night. And they're like, what? No one has even heard of this show. Uh, We didn't win, but still, it was a very proud achievement to be nominated for an open all night. Again, if you have any questions, anything you want to know, just go to my blog, buycandlevi.com, and go to any post. Just click on comments and say, I've got a question, and list your question. I'll do my best to answer it. And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. All right. Nice background music starts. Beautiful. Okay. Again, thanks very much to you for listening, to Adam and Susie Butler, also to Howard Hoffman for the great artwork for this site. And I will see you again next time. This is Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine. Okay. You can get off the treadmill. Okay.